You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good morning. Uh, Today is August 25th, uh, 2022. Uh, I am Peter Betke. I am the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University and a professor in the economics department here at George Mason. And I'm thrilled to be here today uh, to have this discussion of Erwin Decker's uh, new book, well, relatively new book, on Jan Tinbergen and the rise of economic expertise. Uh, Erwin, I'm really excited, uh, is here as he's a senior fellow in our Hayek program with me. Uh, that's after 10 years of working at Erasmus University. Um, Erwin is the author of a fantastic book on the students of civilization. Uh, and then he is now the author of this new book, which if I was on camera, I, I guess I would show it. Yep. Let me see. Yep. Here, this new book, uh, which is an award-winning book. Congratulations to Erwin for that. And we're here with a great panel to have a conversation about that. Uh, uh we have, uh, 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 um, who is a professor at University of Bologna, is the author of a fantastic biography on Albert Hirschman, as well as a book on the, uh, uh, the sort of the political economy of the World Bank. Um, he's going to go first and, and give his remarks. And then we have uh, Sandra Pert, who is the dean at Jepson School of Leadership at Richmond University of Richmond. She is also the author of several fantastic works, uh, as well as being president of the Adam Smith Society and the History of Economic Society. Um, and I will just mention, uh, you know, uh, not only, uh, you know, her fantastic little book on the essential John Stuart Mill, but also this amazing book on Towards an Economics of Natural Equals, which she published with David Levy with Cambridge as well. So I'm going to get out of the way. I will turn it over to Michaela. Uh, you go first, and then Sandra, you just come in right as after he's done, and then Erwin. Uh, well, Erwin, you give some opening remarks first, right? Is that right? Yeah, I apologize for that. So, Erwin, uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, give your opening remarks, then we'll go to Michaela, then Sandra, and then back to Erwin, and then open it up for a conversation among all of us. Okay, so Erwin, floor is yours. Thank you so much, Pete. So, today I want to say something about my. Uh, intellectual biography of Jan Timbergen. Um, the book traces the upbringing in The Hague to his later work on peace economics, but today I don't intend to give a full overview of his life or work, but rather to present one of the two key arguments that runs through the book, namely that Timbergen's book, uh, work should be understood as a contribution to what the Germans call Staatswissenschaften, or in plain English, economics as a science or better an instrument for state governance. This is not how the first Nobel Prize winner in economics is typically remembered. He won alongside the Norwegian Ragnar Frisch for their work on the analysis of economic fluctuations. In other words, models of the business cycle. 
For Tim Bergen, the prize is directly connected to his pioneering macroeconometric model, which he developed and estimated for the Dutch economy in 1936, and then a few years later for the U.S. economy. Um, Fries and Timbergen are further remembered as pioneers of econometrics and, and founding members of the Econometric Society in the 1930s, and therefore associated with both the mathematization of economics, as well as the more recent empirical turn in economics generally and macroeconomics specifically. This pioneering role in empirical studies of the macroeconomy is a good entry point to start my argument why Timbergen's work changed the way that governments manage the economy much more than that it um, changed the way economics is done. He, his career started at the Dutch Bureau of Statistics, where Timbergen worked until 1945. So the first 17 years of his professional career were spent not mainly at a university, but at a statistical bureau. He was involved in efforts to standardize measures of GDP, unemployment, and various other macro statistics and industrial measures. measures. This was an international effort which happened in various European uh, countries as well as the U.S., partly at the initiative of the League of Nations, where Tim Bergen would construct his model of the U.S. economy in the late 1930s. The construction of standardized measures of the economy were a key input for the later macroeconomic models and for the type of quantitative economic policy which Tim Bergen came to favor. The adoption of standard measures of GDP was also, for instance, a precondition for the reception of martial aid after the Second World War, of which the Netherlands received the most of all countries in per capita terms. So it was immediately tied up with um, state uh, aid and uh, interventions in the economy. It is important to emphasize that such statistical efforts were not new, um, right? They had been a lot around for a couple of centuries even, but they specifically took off uh, at the German historical school in the late 19th century, who really played a pioneering role in this idea to control and uh, get a grip on the economy through, through statistics. And macroeconomic indicators developed very quickly during the 1920s and 30s, when, for instance, index numbers, GDP figures, and business cycle barometers were constructed. This drive for quantification was intimately tied up with the desire to get a better grip and more control over the economy. And interestingly, in Timbergen's case, the inspiration for doing so did not mainly come from earlier attempts at state planning or even wartime planning as it did for some other economists. It in fact came from business planning or management planning. So he was particularly impressed by Fordism and Taylorism and other new management techniques which used quantification to uh, plan within the firm. He spoke of the rationalization which had happened in industry while government was lacking behind, and he saw his efforts at the Bureau of Statistics as an attempt to rationalize uh, government policy. The historian should always be wary of great claims about the new or revolutions, but something fundamentally altered, I think, in the 1930s and 40s about what the scope of rational economic planning and management of the economy could achieve. That story can be told as an ideological battle between communism and capitalism, I think a, a favorite sort of narrative, but the story of Timbergen is that of the middle, of a social democrat who, after a very brief radical period in his youth, wanted to couple socialist goals with rational economic management in a European social democratic fashion. That story is less dramatic in the preface I joke that I have essentially written 
uh, the biography of a bureaucrat, which is not very attractive or uh, dramatic, but it is very informative, I believe, about state building in the 20th century. After Timbergen left the Bureau of Statistics, he became the founding director of the Central Planning Bureau in the Netherlands. This institute was somewhat oddly named, for they never actually attempted central planning. What they did do was to use Timbergen's most important innovation for governing the economy, so-called decision models. The models of the 1930s, for which he received the Nobel Prize and which made him famous, sought to explain the dynamics of the economy, but they actually provided very little guidance on how policy might alter these dynamics. They were essentially analytic and descriptive models, not uh, models to steer the economy. They relied on the assumption that policy was given or exogenous. In the decision models that he constructed in the 1950s, there were instrument variables, such as the interest rate, tax rates, or government expenditure, and for a while, even the wage rate, which was centrally set in the Netherlands. Policymakers could use these instruments to manipulate certain target variables, such as the unemployment rate, the GDP level, as well as income levels. The idea of instruments or levers which can be used to steer the economy is often associated with change in macro, macro management of the economy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that idea, but putting all of this on Keynes, I think, does um, tend to obscure a lot because Keynes essentially provided the sort of ideology to do this, but he provided very little of the concrete tools or thought about the institutes which might uh, implement such measures, in part because Tim, uh, Keynes had such a direct line to government, whereas, uh, as I said, Tim Bergen was much more the bureaucrat than the uh, economic expert and engineer. So these institutional changes um, meant that there were new organizations such as the statistical bureaus and planning agencies, but also a national cent nationalized central bank, which controlled the interest rate and sometimes corporatist organizations where unions, employers and the state met to set um, key uh, policies such as the wage rate. Tim Bergen also realized it required a new type of economics training in which the emphasis moved away from the books and economic history to a combination of mathematical skill and a deep sense of resp social responsibility and social concerns, right? So he also wasn't a pure technocrat in the sense that he only thought about technical methods. He actually saw these people as uh, socially aware and socially responsible uh, governors of the economy. Those working at the new organizations would be the economic experts, of which I think Tim Bergen is a kind of exemplary type. He was exemplary precisely because he not only pioneered the technical tools, which was important, but even more so because he made uh, this new form of management possible through his uh, sort of entrepreneurial um, role in setting up these institutes. He and his students developed and helped found some of the key organizations and provided a home and a place of influence for these policy experts. In the book, I show, for instance, how the Dutch Central Planning Bureau functioned as a model for the state planning organization in Turkey. In a comparative study of planning methods from the early 1950s, Tim Bergen sent out surveys to 51 similar national organizations which did this type of economic planning on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Meanwhile, his student, Koos Polak, played an important role in shaping the research agenda at the IMF and played a key role in setting up the modern global uh, economic indicators. In my reading, this combination of the systematic collection of, of statistics and the um, founding of institutes which use these 
as an input to plan or steer the economy should be seen as a new form of state building and international governance. This is also evident from the fact that Timbergen realized that the rise of expertise and the establishment of these new organizations required a rethinking of democracy. Timbergen was very willing to do this and was open about it. In the 1930s, he agreed with the critics of parliamentary democracy, um, which had failed to act in the face of big crisis, he argued. And he added that nearly all members of parliament were, in fact, ignorant when it came to economic matters. So his push for expert institutions was explicitly an argument to move economic policy away from parliament and into the hands of technocrats like him. He suggested that this might have the additional benefit of getting rid of the short-term concerns of politicians. Again, context here is important, right? Tim Bergen was not the only critic of parliamentary democracy in the 1930s. Um, of course, the fascists are famous uh, uh, for pushing for strong political leaders who would essentially replace parliamentary discussions. There were corporatist alternatives who wanted to organize the state along the lines of economic interest groups, elements of which can also be found in Tim Bergen's work. There were order, order liberal proposals to strengthen the rule of law and to limit the scope of what governments were allowed to do. And there were those like Tim Bergen who hoped that a superior form of economic governance could be achieved by giving more decision power to experts working for the national government, often in semi, semi-autonomous institutes. Depending on one's perspective, this might have been one of the lesser evils in the context of the 1930s. But an evil it turned out to be. This is not so well recognized at the domestic level. Some still long back for the activist macroeconomic management of the post-war decades. But even they will acknowledge that economic experts have not always pursued this type of policy and have sometimes, for example, enforced top-down austerity on countries or domestically, as we witnessed in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008. There are others who cheer on the demise of this Keynesian macro-management and who favor the technocratic neoliberalism of the 1990s, sometimes called the Washington Consensus, which they consider a major improvement and an almost necessary consequence of the failure of Keynesian macro-management. But the truth is that both policy agendas are rooted in the same conception of economic expertise and the way that the state governs the economy. The disagreement is over the effectiveness of of different policy tools, not over the desirability of this top-down steering of the economy by non-elected experts, or the effectiveness in general of technical tools to govern a complex society. It is interesting that this is so different outside of the domestic policy arena, where I think the limits of this approach are much better recognized. When Timbergen felt that he had largely completed his project in the Netherlands in the mid-1950s, he turned to development economics, international economics. Timbergen worked for organizations like the United Nations, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the OECD in countries around the world from Indonesia to Turkey and South and Middle America. Many of his students and there were a lot of them, think of dozens, stayed for longer periods of time abroad as development experts. They were sent along with engineers, water experts, and doctors from the West to underdeveloped uh, countries to engineer economic development. In the mid-1950s, planning became the dominant approach, and so in a kind of ironic twist of events, the West sent socialist-inspired economic planners to the rest of the world to prevent the further spread of communism. In my case study of Tim Bergen's work in Turkey, I demonstrate in detail how such an intervention worked. In Turkey, political turmoil 
in this case a military coup, was supported by the West, after which a favorable climate for Western experts was created who were meant to modernize the economy from above. Timbergen came in right at the time of this coup and convinced the military interim government to establish this state planning organization and to give it a lot of power. In Indonesia, Timbergen was sent in after Sukarno's, Sukarno's government crumbled, not long after Sukarno had turned against Western aid with the famous word F your aid. Afterwards, General Suharto seized the opportunity to oppress the left-wing opposition, um, as well as people associated with uh, China, again with military aid from the West. General Suharto led a bloody campaign, sometimes called the Indonesian Genocide, which is now estimated to have killed between half a million and 1.2 million citizens. It was hoped that Tim Bergen's advice to Suharto, the new leader, would help stabilize the Indonesian economy and legitimize the new government. The contested nature of the enterprise cannot have been lost on Tim Bergen, who was greeted by major student protests at the airport when he arrived. It is well established that early development economics was ineffective and increased economic inequalities, but it was the political economic side, I think, that was more harmful in the long run. It legitimized or perhaps normalized outside interventions in the underdeveloped countries, often former colonies and newly independent countries. It makes clear that the most fundamental weakness of economics as an instrument of state governance it becomes complicit in whatever goals governments decide to pursue. This jeopardizes the integrity of economics as a science. One of his students explained to me that Tim Bergen did not want to see any publications on the widespread corruption and abuse of international aid that development countries received, the famous golden bads in Africa, for instance, afraid that it might lower this, uh, the levels of aid that um, existed. But more importantly, it undermines the role that economic science can play as a critique of those in power, because it has become an instrument of this power. Not to mention that it makes all social problems look like problems of state governance. This is very much what happened in development economics, which has since been rightly criticized for its neo-colonial aspirations, its entanglement with Cold War politics, and its status top-down approach. That Tim Bergen, in his own work, got caught up in these development projects that went against his pacifist and socialist convictions, who, for example, refused the draft, should be a warning to all of us. This is the man who was described by Paul Samuelson as a humanist saint, who was welcomed at Haverford College in Massachusetts as a natural Quaker. Even Keynes, in his biting critique of Tim Bergen's econometric model, could not fault his moral character. No one is more frank, more painstaking, more free from subjective bias, than Professor Timbergen. There is no one, therefore, so far as human qualities go, whom it would be safer to trust with black magic. The fault, therefore, was not in moral, in the moral character of Timbergen, about who I also failed to discover any moral scandals or juicy details, aside perhaps from the fact that he proudly never owned a car and bragged about it, but greatly enjoyed being driven around and uh, had a private chauffeur. Nor did it have to do something to do with his political convictions. Tim Bergen, in fact, opposed NATO for not being sufficiently international and too much an instrument for Western power politics. And his concern with the poor was genuine, as I illustrate in many passages of the book. The fault must therefore be with the stuff itself, the black magic. The danger lies in the approach and the institutional position of economic expertise that Tim Bergen envisioned. 
His own career is again exemplary. Timbergen did not become full professor until 1954, when he was 51. And even then, it was to trade in his position to work as expert for Dutch government to that of an expert for international organization, not to gain more critical academic distance from policy and political power. He, in fact, became more ambitious as his career grew about the role that experts should play, especially in global politics. A check on such power was hardly ever discussed in his work. Sandy Peart and David Levy have done much in their work to uncover the troubled relationship between expertise and democracy. In her inauguration as Erasmus Fellow in London, Deirdre McCloskey last year spoke of the age of policy and what it entails. The age of policy of our masters taxing, subsidizing, nudging, regulating, protecting, penalizing, and jailing us with expert guidance from the economists and calculators needs to end. The metaphor of the childlike character or the inferior races justified slavery, European imperialism, and various other atrocities. From a critical left perspective, Jamie Martin, in a book that just came out, leveled a similar critique of expertise at the international level in The Meddlers. Both labels fit Timbergen well. He was happy to draw parallels between economic policy and moral paternalism. That's sort of... Uh, a nice way to illustrate this is that his wife served on the film board for a while. So she uh, determined which films were immoral and should not be shown to the public. In my previous work, I have suggested that the humble approach of students of society provide an alternative to the economist as expert. So do more critical appro approaches found on the left and the right. I would like to think that there's also a possibility for an empowering or emancipatory agenda for economics. But before we get there, we must understand how a particular type of economic expertise, working in service of the government, both national and international, became so influential. We must study how it influenced the development of economics as a discipline and which state organizations and institutions have enabled it. I hope that this book provides a step in that direction. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Pete. And uh, um, thank you all for inviting me to uh, this uh, panel. Uh, this have the opportunity of discussing this important book and it's uh, great to meet uh, Erwin in person uh, though through a screen uh, for the first time and to see again uh, Sandra uh, after several years. Um, I would like in, in my comments to uh, touch upon three uh, points. I, this book uh, provides so, so many stimuli that uh, I could have chosen others but uh, uh, these, uh, um, these were, uh, uh, struck me as, uh, as uh, relevant. The first one is uh, uh, Erwin Decker's uh, interest in institutions. Uh, in, uh, and I will discuss that as uh, the first point. And then a second point, a larger one I would like to discuss is uh, the role of the technocrat and uh, its agency in history. And finally, if uh, I have time, uh, I would like to discuss about uh, the economic role of the state and what can we say, or at least a, a short comment we can make uh, uh, about that. So as far as the first point is uh, concerned, uh, I agree that this book, uh, as uh, Erwin said earlier, is really uh, uh, about uh, economics as an instrument of uh, state governance uh, 
or at least this is a, a very important thread that runs uh, uh, across the book, uh, and I found it uh, enormously interesting. Interesting. Um, the, this, the discussion of uh, uh, Tim Bergen's uh, decision models, uh, his uh, uh, planning approach, uh, and uh, his institution building uh, is uh, particularly relevant to me. Uh, the role of the new organizations in uh, uh, as interfaces uh, between uh, uh, research and policy making is uh, is important. Thinking about uh, the role of these organizations, I um, think one particularly interesting aspect is the tension between the two poles of uh, um, valuable and free and independent research on one side and the relevance for policy of these institutions. And I speak about uh, of attention because uh, uh, Often, when uh, the connection with political to political power is excessively strong, uh, uh, of course, independent research uh, may suffer. Uh, at, at the other, uh, uh, at the opposite, uh, uh, total independence uh, of uh, uh, research institutions from political power risk uh, may may. Uh, make them irrelevant for uh, uh, policy making. So uh, um, reading this book and, and the specific uh, uh, case studies of uh, these many institutions was uh, uh, very illuminating to me. But well, then I understand that in any case, this is, uh, I would have wanted uh, even more, but this is after all uh, an intellectual biography of uh, Tim Bergen. So uh, let's move to the second point. Uh, and let's look at the uh, individual within the institutions uh, and this specific uh, uh, technocrat uh, and his vision of uh, planning and control uh, through uh, his uh, uh, work in uh, institutions, organizations of economic research. First, I would like to make a, a minor remark uh, on the concept of uh, uh, technocrat uh, because uh, um, I've found uh, uh, myself uh, more in agreement with uh, Erwin uh, in this uh, panel presentation about uh, Tim Bergen's uh, characterization as a technocrat than uh, uh, when I was reading the book. Because in the book, uh, uh, I noticed that uh, uh, Erwin try, tries to separate uh, or to distinguish between Tim Bergen and the typical technocrat. Uh, but I think that uh, that uh, attempt at separating uh, uh, Tim Bergen and, and, and the typical characterization of a technocrat is not really convincing also because that uh, is done in the book uh, through the conflation of two concepts, the elite and, and technocracy, uh, that are different concepts. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, uh, Decker, uh, describes the, tech, the technocrats as uh, driven by technical knowledge and the elite as driven by vision, ideals, uh, and therefore tries to uh, move Tim Bergen more uh, on uh, the, uh, let's say, the elite side than the technocracy side. I'm, I'm not convinced. I'd say that there are... Um, um, well, I'm not convinced, and actually I would like to ask... Uh, um, a question to Erin, uh, why this resistance in recognizing uh, the strong uh, technocratic dimension of uh, Tim Bergen in his profession. But then 
Okay, this is a matter, let's say, of definition. Uh, uh, more interesting is uh, uh, then how can we discuss and understand the role of the technocrat in 20th century political economy? And uh, as far as I understood, uh, uh, it seems to me that uh, Erwin uh, uh, replies uh, to respond to, to this question by separating the man, Tim Bergen, uh, from uh, his uh, technocratic garb. Uh, so Tim Bergen is, uh, as uh, uh, Becker uh, said uh, a few minutes ago, recognized by everybody as a very good person, a holy person, a saint. Uh, but in his role as a technocrat, uh, he endorses uh, top-down policies. Uh, he wears a laboratory coat uh, uh, to uh, work on uh, uh, evil black magic, uh, uh, the evil black magic of uh, economic expertise. And again, I, uh, I'm not convinced. And uh, uh, I was thinking about this uh, while reading the book, uh, and I found a very, uh, I think, a, a relevant example in Tim Bergen's uh, uh, passive stance in the face of Nazism during World War II. Because in those years, he maintained good relations with the Nazis. Uh, he kept uh, his uh, prominent role uh, at the Bureau of Statistics. Uh, he continued to publish uh, in... Uh, uh, scholarly journals that were uh, controlled by uh, Nazi uh, uh, bureaucracy uh, or scholarship, I don't know how to call it. And in 1944, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm taking this information from, uh, uh, from the book. It is uh, uh, Decker who says, who writes this in 1944, uh, Tim Bergen wrote a book uh, on national responses. Uh, uh, to the Great Depression, and uh, in uh, his uh, analysis of uh, Germany, he managed to uh, discuss Germany's economic policies, I'm quoting, without a single word about the massive mobiliz mobilization and war industry of the 30s, end quote. And, and uh, 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 Erwin describes very well uh, the, uh, the coupling, this is a word that he uses, uh, uh, of the economy from other domains uh, in uh, uh, Tim Bergen's uh, professional trajectory. Uh, and Tim Bergen increasingly presented himself uh, as the apolitical expert uh, untouched by ideological uh, uh, divisions. Uh, I think this, uh, this uh, part of uh, the, the analysis in uh, Decker's book is really uh, very, very uh, well done, uh, very interesting, uh, uh, very, uh, in, it's, we can really follow the transition, the, the, the growing, the, the increase in the coupling. Uh, but uh, again, uh, I th it seems to me that Decker separates the individual from uh, the technocratic uh, garb in a way that uh, I am just, I mean, already said, but it's not entirely convincing to me. I'm quoting now from uh, page 210 of the book. A focus on Tim Bergen's involvement in the war, the compromises he was forced to make and the dubious choices he made quickly loses sight of the bigger story. That bigger story is the fact that the war, if anything, accelerated the development of the state as the active manager of the economy and the quantitative economist as the ultimate expert. 
and of course, uh, uh, I totally agree with this uh, uh, reading of the context. The war economy meant uh, uh, increasing planning, uh, state control, uh, uh, routinization of a number of processes, and that uh, uh, meant uh, a growing need for uh, the experts. So, uh, war mobilization was there, uh, the expert was needed, and the expert was born. Uh, but at the same time, the expert, uh, this is my criticism, uh, emerged as a self-proclaimed apolitical, uh, non-partisan, non-ideological figure precisely by deciding, in this case himself, that political considerations could be, could be removed from scientific analysis. And this may have been a convenient, but it is not realistic, because it is not possible to discuss Germany's economic growth in the 30s without an analysis of war mobilization. Uh, in conclusion, I mean, also, this apolitical stance uh, is not credible for other reasons. First of all, a political expertise has direct political repercussions. Uh, and also, uh, a political, uh, self-proclaimed apolitical expertise tips the scale of political debate by delegitimizing specifically and explicitly political claims uh, in the name of an allegedly superior uh, technical neutrality. Uh, so, in conclusion, I think it is not possible to separate the man uh, uh, or the holy soul of the man, of the individual, from his uh, technocratic uh, uh, coat and uh, manipulation of the black magic. And uh, um, I come to, to one of the points, uh, um, I'm coming to my third point, the economic role of the state, if uh, we can say something uh, about that. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm connecting to a point that uh, Decker raised uh, in his introductory remarks. Uh, and he said, uh, okay, so if it is not the fault of the individual, the fault is with the black magic itself. Uh, in, in the fault is in the role of economics as an instrument for state governance uh, and, uh, and the consequences uh, that often uh, have been uh, authoritarian uh, and have uh, uh, been harmful to the life uh, of uh, people. And one example uh, that Decker made is that of development economics. Uh, he said in his remarks that uh, it is well established that early development economics was ineffective and increased economic inequality. I find this uh, difficult to endorse, not because uh, there are not uh, examples of uh, increasing inequality and uh, uh, modernizing uh, project uh, uh, gone totally, uh, totally wrong, but. Uh, the more I study the history of development uh, economics, uh, the more I see uh, a very nuanced picture in which conclusions uh, can be reached uh, only through specific and contextual analysis uh, of uh, uh, development policies, uh, of uh, uh, debates in uh, uh, development economics, uh, uh, and so on. 
And as for inequality, surely there are scholars that uh, have emphasized how uh, policies typical uh, of uh, early development economics, such as uh, uh, import substitution, uh, have been uh, harmful for economic growth of countries. Uh, Williamson, Jeffrey Williamson, uh, has been uh, very, uh, I mean, has worked a lot uh, on these. Uh, and uh, uh, on, on the increase of inequality at the global level because of that kind of policies. But at the same time, for every Jeffrey Williamson, more or less, uh, there is a Branko Milanovic who would argue exactly the opposite, showing how uh, between uh, the late 40s and the 60s, uh, that is the very period of early development economics, uh, global inequality has decreased, uh, and the economic growth of less developed regions was uh, uh, faster than it has been uh, later. So uh, this is just to say, I, I'm not sure we could say with this uh, uh, level of generalization that that is uh, well established. But uh, this variety of results, uh, at least uh, in from my studies, uh, appears not only with regard to economic performance, uh, but also with regard, regard to the role of government. Because again, we have a, a lot of examples uh, of uh, uh, authoritarian uh, government uh, uh, in the name of uh, development uh, and uh, uh, progress uh, and modernization. Becker made uh, two very good examples uh, in remarks now and we have a, a huge literature about uh, uh, the modernist state uh, and its uh, uh, authoritarian drifts. At the same time there is uh, uh, an important line of research that though less bombastic uh, uh, on, 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 on the disruptions created by the modernist state shows also uh, good government processes. I mean, the development of, uh, I have in mind a book by Judith Tendler, Good, good Government in the Tropics, uh, that again, through detailed analysis of processes of policy making, uh, shows uh, how it is possible to uh, create political communities in which uh, the role of government uh, is, uh, uh, doesn't take an authoritarian uh, bend. So this is just to say I would be less, uh, I mean, it, it, I found it difficult to endorse that. And again, in any case, uh, my main point is that uh, if it is not, at the same time, it is not possible to separate the individual uh, from the technocrat uh, and uh, therefore uh, put the uh, all default on uh, on technocratic policies without uh, looking at the uh, individual uh, embodying them. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, and thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, I have to say that I uh, was delighted to, both to be invited, but also to read this book. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's filled with historical detail. It contextualizes Jan Tinbergen's thought and more his actions. It's as much about, and I'm sure you realize this from listening to Erwin's remarks, about what Tinbergen did as what he wrote. 
And it's unusual uh, for us to learn about an economist who was both so important to our thought and so steeped in action. So uh, we should all thank Irwin for uh, his painstaking and highly original work. He argues convincingly, and here my remarks will um, uh, complement those by uh, Michaela, and it's wonderful to see you on the screen, um, Lasevich, um, uh, that Tinbergen's major accomplishment was to develop a modern expertise in service to the state and to be a modern expert in service to the state. Tinbergen gave a sense of urgency to policy issues. He talks about in the 1930s, uh, mathematics and statistics, and this is from uh, Decker's book, in service to business cycle research, and then by the 1940s, this becomes mathematics, statistics, and business cycle research in service of the state. Decker argues forcefully that Tinbergen combined both political ideals and goals with scientific means. His use of data and modeling weren't, wasn't for the sake of modeling in and of itself, but in service to a goal as, for instance, stability of the economy, uh, which Decker writes about. <clears throat> and uh, perhaps it won't surprise you uh, if you are familiar with um, Puritan Levy and our work on experts. Uh, this is where I want to focus my remarks. I want to explore three questions in the time that I have left. The first is uh, perhaps less central to the full book, but I think still important, and then the next two uh, are quite central. First, Decker contrasts Tinbergen's notion of economics as a science in service to the state to that of the marginalists. This comes early in the book, and I'm not sure about that purported contrast. It came out less in your remarks today, but, but uh, I just wanted to... Um, uh, add that, for instance, uh, William Stanley Jevons saw economics as a means to, as he put it, ending the deep and hopeless poverty in the mass of people. And his works, even in the theory of political economy, uh, are informed by that goal. Poor people are to be taught to save more, to marry later in life, to reduce the number of children, to work more and so on in his books, The Methods of Social Reform, published posthumously in the state in relation to labor are in service uh, to that goal. They're to put economics in service to that goal. Jevons is of course, representative of a Victorian, the Victorian era and uh, many later economists of his time. But he sounds very much like Tinbergen's mentor, who, as Decker tells us early in the book, wrote, wrote, quote, there is a field where you can work for the betterment of humankind. In the circles where, your work, where you work, there is a great need for good leaders. I think the issue of good leaders versus leaders who work within constraints to do good things is insufficiently uh, appreciated both by Tinbergen and his mentor, Ehrenfest. And that leads me to my next two main points. 
Second, Decker talks about how Tinbergen was an idealist, and I want to suggest that this led him perhaps to, to neglect the complexity of what he was trying to do. And here I think my remarks will complement both what Decker said today, but also Alasevich. Uh, not just in the simple model of the aggregate economy for which he was criticized, but also in terms of whether it is even possible to create and implement without dancing with authoritarianism a model in service to a goal. How is the goal to be arrived at? Is the modeler really in the model? And if so, is the modeler modeled as we model other economic actors? Is he or she self-interested, for instance? The first question, how is the goal to be arrived at, is an old one. It was raised by John Stuart Mill in his repudiation of Auguste Comte's and other socialist schemes when he wondered about how the state would settle on one single end for all if it were to direct, as he put it, all the forces of society toward, again, as he put it, some one end. Mill wrote, what a foundation for a system of political science this is. Government exists for all purposes, whatever that are for man's good. And the highest and most important of these purposes is the improvement of man himself as a moral and intellect, intelligent being, which is an end not included in Monsieur Comte's category at all. The united forces of society never were, nor can be directed toward one single end. Nor is there, so far as I can perceive, any reason for desiring that they should be. Men do not come into the world to fulfill one single end, and there is no single end which, if fulfilled, even in the most complete manner, would make them happy. This, of course, was Hayek's concern as well. And famously, uh, he noted in The Road to Serfdom that finding a single goal is a pipe dream. He traced the 20th century search for a planning goal to Saint Simon, uh, a not quite a colleague, but it, uh, the same era as Auguste Comte. In a planned system, he wrote, all economic questions become political questions because it is no longer a question of reconciling as far as possible individual views and desires, but one of imposing. Uh, that is dancing, as I put it, with authoritarianism, a single scale of values, the social goal of which socialists ever since the time of Saint-Simon have been dreaming, end quote. None of this is to su suggest, of course, in Decker's remarks today, uh, make this clear that Decker is unaware of these issues. Quite the contrary, he's sensitive to the difficulties. He writes about how Tinbergen put the policymaker inside the model, but without Tinbergen fully exploring the implications of having done so. He talks, Decker, talks uh, as well about Tinbergen's lack of democratic sensibility, even though the expert is in the model. She or he's elevated above everyone else, unlike, say, in the Lucas critique where things are flattened somewhat. Um, Decker suggests as well that B Buchanan gave Tinbergen a way out of this conundrum. 
using Buchanan's idea of the rules of the game. Tinbergen could then talk about changes in rules of the games, which would change the structure of the economy, but changes in a simple policy, such as the interest rate or whatever, would not. He needed the policymaker inside the game and, the, and put the, econo the economist as an analysis, anal analyst excuse me, outside the game. Decker reads Tinbergen through Buchanan's lens. But does this really give Tinbergen a way out? It would depend on how decisions are made regarding the game itself, the rules of the game, surely. Buchanan famously talks about government by discussion and the status of the status quo. I don't see either of these developed in Tinbergen. Decker also talks about how for Tinbergen, plans are to be coordinated through a hierarchy of planning. That's very unlike, I would say, Mill uh, or Hayek. And still we're left with the overarching planning goal. How is that established non-democratically, it seems? These issues become I would argue, and I think the book demonstrates, increasingly important as Tinbergen's career pro uh, progresses. Finding the goal in the wake of a, a world war might be feasible if the goal is similar to the wartime goal. Planning for a small country, such as the Netherlands or mine, Canada, at least it's small in population, might seem feasible if we can get agreement amongst the people that say order, so important to Tinbergen, is the goal. But planning for a developing country has, that has so many different problems, one of which is sh um, shaking off the shackles of colonial domination. Here it's not clear that the modeler has enough insight to specify the goal. And certainly, for a world federation, the idea of specifying the goal seems un outside the realm of plausibility. And third, I wanted to just uh, briefly remark on the business of where the modeler is. Decker um, writes about how uh, Tinbergen uh, places the modeler inside the model. And, I, and here I think what's lacking is the idea that the modeler, if inside the model, is as self-interested as everyone else. Uh, and here I return again to the letter from Ehrenfest to Tinbergen. If the leaders, qua, the modelers, qua policymakers, are good people, then perhaps we can trust the model and trust that it'll be implemented. Uh, however, if the modelers and those who implement the model are interested in something other than the overall goal. Perhaps uh, they're not so interested in stability. They're interested in increasing the size of um, their, uh, their area. Uh, things will diverge. They will implement something other than the recommendations Tinberg and hoped for, and we will end up with a very large public sector with craft uh, and so on, and no real aim for uh, uh, for example, stability, or as in development, Decker talks about state-led growth. These are issues that seem to show up as Decker demonstrates most significantly in Tinbergen's attempts to help developing countries. All in all, 
I think this is a wonderful study. It's nuanced. It doesn't shy away from difficult issues. I learned a great deal from it, and I look forward to our discussion. Uh, thank you very much. Erwin, uh, would you have some comments to respond? Yeah, let me uh, respond to um, a couple of the, the great questions and, and, and critiques that have been raised. Perhaps to start uh, where my talk also started, and that is this tradition of Staatswissenschaften or the economics and service of the state and how that contrasts to marginalism. So I, I fully agree that uh, with, with Sandy Port's book and they have demonstrated very well that Jevons in fact um, fits this um, fits this persona of the moralist um, very well. What in part my argument is, and um, I could not fully develop it in, in this book, but I hope to develop it more in a, in, a, in a future study of this German historical school, is that this idea of economics and service of the state is a longer tradition, perhaps the really stable tradition or the real continuity that we see and it is very much obscured by traditional tales about the marginal revolution, because the traditional tale about the marginal revolution is that it makes economics sort of autonomous as a discipline. It gives it its own domain, which it can study, its own set of principles, which it can use to study, and most of all, its own scientific status. Um, and that idea of an autonomous science, I think, obscures very much how much uh, the development of actual economics uh, remains shaped by its role as working in service of the state. Um, and it obscures also very much how much of the legitimacy that economist has uh, or that, that economics has in modern society actually derives from its functionality to serve as, right? So if you ask the Marion Foucault a question, why? Is it that economists are seem to be so elevated uh, among the social sciences? Um, the marginalist revolution answer, I think, would be, well, because it just is more of a science, right? So it's in some sense closer to physics. Um, and my answer would be, well, it is because it has proved more willing and more capable of serving those in power, um, right? And those are two, perhaps two strongly contrasted answers now. But that is, the, I think, the reason why I go after this marginalism story uh, a bit. And that's not to say that this is true for the individual marginalists, but it is very much true for the historiography that economists tell of their own discipline in which the marginal revolution is one of the moments that we pinpoint, perhaps the most important moment that we pinpoint as now economics becomes a science. And I know there's moments after this um, where, where people claim this because it's a sort of recurring claim, right? You, you can find it earlier, you can find it later. But I think it's a very important rhetorical strategy and one that historians of economics have not been sufficiently critical of. Whereas I think tracing economics as, as um, working in, in, as a, in service of the government is as important in providing legitimacy to the discipline and uh, its elevated status. Um, then let me um, then move to one of the questions that Michaela raises because I find it so fascinating. And in fact, it's one of perhaps the unresolved struggles and 
uh, right? The book is now a year out, which means that I finished it nearly two years ago. That's how these things go. So, right, you 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 learn more afterwards. Uh, I have found sometimes than you do writing the book, and that is in my concluding chapter. I try to ask whether Tim Bergen had different personalities or different aspirations, and to what extent they could be reconciled and to what extent also he had different legacies. Um, and one of those legacies is as uh, a kind of moral leader or uh, even a, a moral guide, right? So in the most extreme version of it that I cite in that chapter is that one of his students listed him next to Gandhi, uh, um, right? Which as uh, as a thinker, in the tradition of peace, but there's there's other examples, although they're more obscure, they haven't really found a place in the academy and so on and so forth. But this has been an important legacy of him. And it's interesting that also all his colleagues always remarked upon this. And then Michaela rightfully asks, so how is it that this supposedly morally flawless, this sort of Mother Teresa of economics um, came to be involved in so many projects, then certainly Erwin is wrong in trying to say, well, he was both morally flawless and he was captured in so many of these um, problematic political episodes, including World War II, indeed, in which in my own remarks, I I haven't said too much about what, which I essentially devote an entire chapter to figuring out his role then. Um, And decoupling is, is, is part of that story. So it seems that Tim Bergen is good at conveniently forgetting his own moral principles or setting them aside um, when they seem to interfere with his role as economic expert working in service of governments whose aims or whose means he doesn't seem to agree with. Um, I guess one sort of human explanation for that would be cowardice. So I've toyed around and I, I think it's even a on paper in in the final chapter that he was in some sense a more fearful man than a courageous man, right? So when push came to shove, he didn't speak up in face of evil, but he sort of went along or um, at least didn't didn't directly oppose it because the story of the Second World War, I don't think should be read as a story of him being completely complicit. There There were moments of silence and there were moments where perhaps he didn't do what was asked of him, but he also didn't directly oppose it. So I think on a human level, that would be one explanation for it, right? He was he had the right moral ideals, but wasn't they always able to live up to those ideals when uh, the situation was most tense? I think the other one, the other story one could tell is one of moral corruption, um, right? Precisely the fact that he worked in and that he found himself in the situations that he was in because of his role as an economic expert and as a role as a government bureaucrat, ultimately, meant that he had to put his own ideals aside in order to be successful and to be influential. Uh, And I think Tim Bergen certainly um, did this. So I think he was very acceptable, often even as a chair of a lot of the committees or as a director of many of the institutes that he was associated with, precisely because he didn't put his own moral values um, 
uh, front and center when he was asked in these positions. But because he was able to present himself as uh, as a neutral expert and willing to do so, right? So in some to, to use Michaela's metaphor, right? He was willing to put on his lab coat when his lab coat was expected of him, uh, and not his 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 moral or his preacher gown, which he certainly, in a in a certain sense, had had, had with him too, uh, and he could do that, uh, but he didn't do so. So in that sense, he's sometimes being accused been accused of political naivete or so. But I think here, in fact, he was able to understand quite well what was expected of him and was willing to play that role to a very large degree. And I think in some sense that should be uh, treated as uh, either a story of moral corruption or him uh, working along with it. Um, so does that fully reconcile it? I, I mean... It's it that, that is that is so, so yeah I find that 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 question so difficult. It does I think on a broader level show something about what economic what is ultimately expected of economic expertise, right? And it's it's that we that economic experts don't say something about the ends, that they don't start moral discussions, but that they calculate means, right? Or calculate um, um, whatever goal is uh, is is given to them. Uh, and and that itself is very problematic. And I think, right, as I say in my remarks today, the fact that even Timbagen wasn't able to stand up to it should be a, a very serious warning, right? Good leadership alone, as, as Sandy sort of, I think, is suggesting to us, is not good enough in, in, in that instance. You need more. So you need, uh, right, either constraints or institutional safeguards uh, to make that, that function properly. Um, then on to Michaela's argument about these uh, the early development economics, right, and whether it it it, it was actually partially successful, um, or whether it led to to more inequality and actually failed to uh, bring about much economic development. Um, I mean, I think in part this is an empirical question that's that's hardly um, that we can hardly figure out uh, completely here today. I don't think there's. Uh, really, a success story from these early right. So there isn't a there isn't a country that we can clearly point to and say, well, you know, if we look at this these early twenty years, then clearly it has worked in this country. So they somehow had it right in this one, and we can study why they had it right. The inequalities I refer to were actually not on the global level, although it is striking how late global inequality really started to decline. Right, essentially for the period that Tim Bechen worked between the Second World War. Uh, and 1975 or so, there is very there is in fact more divergence. It appears in in the statistics on global inequality, but the inequalities I refer to or meant to refer to in 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 my uh, opening remarks, and I wasn't clear. Well, more local, right? So, uh, Timbergen in Turkey, I, I demonstrate essentially propped up the economy of the cities and did so, and by doing so, alienated uh, the people in the countryside. Uh, from uh, the project of modernization. And I think this type of, this is actually quite typical of the industrialization strategies that were pursued in the beginning, right? They uh, singled out particular um, industries that were either modern or that were supposed to be the motor of economic growth. And uh, so these particular industries benefited a great deal and the people working in them uh, benefited accordingly. Uh, and so in that sense, it might have, uh, increased inequalities in 
in these countries and at least to the development economists themselves, including Timbach, and this was the major flaw, right? So when he started development decade two for the United Nations, he said this was the major uh, blind spot of the uh, of the policies we pursued before. So we have to change that. Then I think, then I want to move to, I think, uh, the final thing that I should say something about now that directly, and that is whether the, the policymaker is inside the model, right? And um, Sandy has said some, some, some very great things about that, right? I have tried to, uh, I guess, um, um, problematize that notion a little bit because Tim Bergen can claim that the policymaker was in the model after the 1950s. The question then becomes, is he sufficiently in the model? Because clearly his decision-making power is in, is, is, is in, is in the model. Timber has, has, has really interesting ideas that he says, you, you, these are decision models, you can place them everywhere. So you could also develop them at the level of an organization where some people have certain decision-making powers. And so we should model those uh, variables as depend, being dependent on the decision of that decision-maker. And that very clearly, in some sense, puts the governors or the, the, the decision-makers inside the model. But they're but they indeed are um, believed to be working in the general good. And here, I think, actually, the combination, so Michele said something about technocrats and moral elites. I think the it's, it's actually the combination that is doing the work here. So the technocrat might actually be a much, might even be a more humble person um, in the sense that it really only becomes, he, he really is only the calculator or the technician. And it's precisely Tim Bergen's combination of being a technocrat. And as I uh, developed perhaps to a fault from his early Christianity, his socialist, uh, the, 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 his particular brand of socialism, and then uh, right his later moralist role, precisely believed not merely that technocracy was the way forward because it provided superior tools, but technocracy was the way forward because it could fulfill the function of both being a modernizing force as well as a moral force. And for this reason, I perhaps over overemphasize almost that point, but I think it's, it's really crucial to understand the success. These technocrats would have not been nearly as influential in the post-war state, I think, if they didn't also have a moral agenda. And it was precisely that they also had a moral agenda that made them much more persuasive than if they had none. Uh, and Tim Bergen is, in, in that instance, a very interesting case. And I, I therefore think that his uh, the way he thought of himself as a moral elite and perhaps the way that Sandy outlined that Jevons also thought of himself as a kind of um, moral elite or, or knowing, right, as a, as a progressive, is crucial to understanding why um, it came to have have the influence and the appeal that it had, right? These were not nerdy calculators, but these were idealists with technical skills. Um, and I think both are important for understanding the appeal of the program. Erwin, if I can, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions myself. Um, I really like the point that Sandy made about the other marginalists because I would also point out that Pugu is very clear that economics must bear fruit. 
And in fact, if it doesn't serve this role that you're talking about, he would rather study religion. He'd rather study. He actually says, I'd rather study all these other things. I wouldn't look to studying the market, at, you know, for any kind of inspiration. Uh, I, you know, I, I only do it because it must bear fruit, which relates to what Sandy was talking about from Jebbins and the idea of what, what they're supposed to do to solve social problems. <clears throat> so I guess my first question, and let me just ask the questions, uh, uh, you know, cause I see them as connected, but you know, you're, I want to understand the relationship between the people who populated your first book. OK, and the people populating the second book, because uh, both Menger and Mises use this phrase to indict the German approach as what they called it was Prussian police science. All right. That's not a non-normative assessment about what's going on. Prussian police science. So the technocrat and. On 256, when you bring up Buchanan, you also hit the nail on the head in the paragraph there of what they're, what your first students of civilization are going at there, because you point out that the technocrat knows less than what they presume they know, and the people that they're studying know more than they will ever know, which is a little different from Lucas, because remember, the Lucas critique is just that no th the, that no agent in the economy doesn't know what the theorist knows but the sort of you know students of civilization point is that the ordinary people know more than the theorist will ever be able to know which is why it is the looking from the inside out becomes uh you know crucial so if you could maybe talk about that my second comment relates more to the the meta aspects of all this which is and I don't blame Tinbergen for this. I think he wrote a wave, but def and it starts when Sandy was talking about it, it actually starts with Sidgwick probably, but uh, there's a transformation of economics and there's a transformation of what the training of the economists is. Now, Tinbergen and the earlier ones, they had enough connection to the classicals that they thought you had to be training with a conscience. But post-World War II, you have maybe training without a conscience, right, at some level. And part of what's coming back today is training with a conscience again. That's what's driving a lot of the concerns with inequality or like that. But the training's still the same. And the jobs are connected to the training. And so the question is, is how much of this has actually can possibly change once it's taken hold? Right? There's, I, you know, I'm going to attribute maybe... Um, you know, the wrong person to this, but like, I think it was Mark Twain said, it's really difficult to get someone to argue a, a position that's against their material self-interest. And one of the things we have to recognize is that the rents by being viewed as dentists, Keynes, plumbers, Duflo, right? Or these technocrats, the rents are a hell of a lot higher than us being viewed as moral philosophers who, you know, reflect on the common woolen coat uh, you know, and how it how it ends up on the back of the day laborer. And so in addition to the inside out versus outside in, how much of the transformation of economics is subject to the criticism of, you know, the, the expert, the humility that you point out in that passage on 256, 
you know, that's, uh, you know, the, the last comment I'll make related to this, and it relates to, to McKellar raising up the issues having to do with development. I listened to a fantastic podcast the other day with, with Trudy Rajagopalan and Jen Mertzesvili. Jen Mertzesvili is an expert on Afghanistan. And they were talking about recent developments in Afghanistan, not the most recent developments, but basically over the last 20 years and everything like that. And she made an interesting remark, which she didn't develop enough on, but I think it relates to your story in Turkey, which she said in economics and political economy, we talk about alienation a lot, but what we don't talk about is indignation, right? And we should actually talk a lot more about indignation which is that when we go in and we set up these kind of things, like, for example, bias the policies towards the cities rather than the countryside, what do we leave in the countryside? We end up by leaving not alienated people, but indignant people. They're pissed off, right? They're angry about what has happened because the, the central controller has, in fact, pushed them aside. And, and I don't know really what to do. I mean, it's just a comment. It was an offhanded comment by her. But I've been thinking about it ever since, which is this issue of that, you know, what are the consequences of indignation? Because, again, you think about, you know, what went on in the in the, in the countryside of, of various different development uh, experiments uh, over the 20th century or for that matter, you know, uh, globalization and the adaptations and adjustments that are required and the people that are left behind in some of those. Right. I mean, you know, so. How do we cope with that idea? Uh, and it's connected to these students of civilization and this transformation of economics. Maybe that's too much, and I apologize. But maybe if you could just think about this Prussian police science comment. I will try to end with Prussian police science. But let me pick up the, the latter point in the beginning, right? Because I think uh, Michaela brought up, right, whether early development economics was effective or not. And we can have the same debate about the Washington consensus, right? I know that some of the people I know have, have, have papers out showing that the Washington consensus was actually, despite popular belief, quite quite effective. I think what we're, we are developing or what um, some of these points bring up is that effectiveness might be the wrong metric to look at all of this. Uh, right and the real and and Tim Bergen was really big on effectiveness as the sort of sole measure of um, of whether a policy worked and that might be the very right one of the fundamental flaws in the project um, right right people of course said to me well you've written about the Austrians so we know that you're going to be critical of planning so right what is what is there what is there to learn? From uh, right, studying one of the one of the people who was so favorable to planning. Well, uh, one of the things where I certainly was radicalized is how deeply all of this development economics was tied up with colonial beliefs and uh, institutions, which in some sense tried to perpetuate colonialism or find new forms for an intervention. And if we think about indignation, I think. That is a is a very direct connection that I would make, and then it's not about whether it was effective, right? Perhaps it did give us a a, a GDP growth of seven percent, but it could still have led to very serious forms of indignation. And what my book cannot show, perhaps because of its setup, is that this was repeated, right? It was not one intervention 
but it was repeated interventions. They were not consistent with each other. They sometimes pursued radically different goals. Even in Turkey in the early 1950s, right? Turkey, people, a lot of people don't know this, but received martial aid. So it had tight connections to the U.S. early on. The U.S. first pushed for open, open markets and agricultural trade. So it seemed to be an ally of the farmers. And then the cons- consensus in development uh, literature switched and they brought in these people who were going to do industrialization, uh, right? And the the people of Turkey must have felt like guinea pigs. And I think this continues to this day um, with our RCT methodology, which very easily treats human subjects as material to experiment on, Um Right. Uh, yeah. Steve Ziliak has a wonderful paper out showing that there's an RCT to prove that reading glasses um, improve literacy or improve ability to read uh, among uh, Chinese youngsters. And uh, in order to test this, we also gave some people placebos. He says this is absolutely ridiculous. Right. Uh, we know that reading glasses work and we shouldn't experiment this way on people. And uh, we have done this in other ways. Uh, it leads to indignation. It might also lead to forms of envy, right? Or increase inequalities, not merely in the sense of material inequalities, but in the sense that one group is getting something for seemingly uh, inexplicable reasons, right? And in an RCT, it's even by design inexplicable, right? Because it must be random that some group receives something and another group receives nothing. We think very little, I think, about these effects. So it might be that the moral effect of this development strategy, or the moral critique of this development strategy is much more important than merely the effectiveness critique, um, right? Might ex- actually be sometimes quite effective in trying to set out what it um, what it seeks to do, but that's a very narrow metric, metric to evaluate whether that program did what it wants to do. Let me then turn to the students, right? I think there's one very easy um, connection between the two that I think is very, very telling. So one of the arguments I make is that medical metaphors were very dominant in Vienna, uh, right? So, um, and that uh, I even speculate a little bit whether the um, medical philosophy of therapeutic skepticism at the Vienna Medical School was somehow influential or symbolic of a broader sort of cultural atmosphere in Vienna. One of the most, I think, the best critiques that Tim Bergen's development economics received is that it's only interested in cures and never in diagnosis. Now, the Viennese medical school was accused of precisely the opposite. It was only interested in diagnosis, um, emblematically in doing autopsy, right? So already dead bodies that cannot be healed in no any kind of way, and they said, this is most important for science is that we do autopsies um, because we can learn about the functioning of the body this way. Where's the more practical doctor said, what are you going to do with a dead body? Focus on the living, right? This is neglect of your duty to actually care about the the living people out there and to heal. Uh, And I think this is a very basic uh, sort of philosophical outlook that is very different where Tim Bergen is very clearly with the practical doctors who seek to heal, right? And, and right, again, here it might be symbolic that on, on the same plane that he was sent out, the doctors were, were also, uh, right? The actual physical doctors were, were, were also present. And, and that was what he was 
he was meant to do. Um, can we do something um, about that? Right? Is it is it too much in the material interests of of economists to do this? And I I think at the very least, I hope my talk today by saying ten times in service of the state should make us think that we could also have our bread buttered some other way. Um, Right. We could work in service of business, which uh, there might be critiques of e economists that they do too much of this. Right. We have now have prominent academic economists working at Google or, or Uber. And uh, some people find that uh, a good development. Other people are very bad development. But it's clear that you can have your bread buttered elsewhere. I would hope that we could also do it for civil society organizations or perhaps in service of society as a whole. And that you can do, of course, through economics education, but there might be other ways of doing it. But we have focused on a very particular agent that's uh, buttering our bread. And I don't think it's necessarily the only one out there, but it has become very, very dominant. And I think that precisely that fact has shaped so much of the history of economics as a discipline and, and, and why it's so important how they chose that one. And in Even in Tim Bergen's case, it's, it's very interesting that his early career choice was between working at Phillips and working at the Bureau of Statistics, right? So he could have tried to do the rationalization within a company, um, within the competitive market, market space, but instead he opted to do so and found it more morally preferable and morally better to do so working in service of the state. And I think that's a very common assumption, a common belief, and perhaps one that we should challenge. Well, I want to thank everyone. It's fantastic uh, discussion. Congratulations again, Erwin, on this fantastic book. And uh, thank you, uh, Michaela and, and Sandra. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.